the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. Today's guest, Bonnie Meyer, has lived her life set in the romantic era of Napa Valley. Bonnie and her husband, Justin, established and owned two wineries. They shared the ups and downs of life and business, and along with other prominent wineries of the time, they helped revolutionize Napa Valley. Bonnie's story is one filled with deep grief and enduring love. She shares wisdom and advice for living a full life with purpose. Bonnie is the principal of Meyer Family Enterprises. She is the author of the book, perfectly paired. Welcome, Bonnie. Thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful to be here with you. So, Bonnie, you created a wonderful life with your husband, Justin, who has since passed away. Can you tell us about your relationship? What was your life like? Well, um, when Justin and I met, we he, he, was, a, he was a monk, and uh, we, we became friends almost immediately. Uh, through music. I played the guitar, he played the banjo, we started playing together in church, and without intending it, we fell in love with each other. And we spent the next five years trying not to be in love with each other, which is really an interesting way to start a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I think that had a lot to do with um, how, how solid our love relationship and marriage became uh, because it started with friendship. Neither one of us ever trying to romance the other. It just emerged. And uh, we ended up um, just being so attracted to each other that we just couldn't stand it. And, And that continued throughout our whole time together. So we were married. We knew each other for about 35 years, married for 30 so how did you get involved in the wine industry? We met at UC Davis. I was a freshman, and he was finishing a master's degree. Um, as a Christian brother, he had been designated by the brothers to be the future president of Christian Brothers Winery, which was one of the largest wineries in the United States in the 60s mm-hmm. at that time. And uh, so he was already in the wine business and and um through our friendship actually uh i got to know professor his professor uh dr omo and ended up working for him uh in the summers and during school year uh he was a hybrid creating hybrids um of grapes and making wine Um, But I never thought I would end up in the wine business. I never thought I would be marrying Justin. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was kind of, it was actually accidental. I'm an accidental vintner. Uh Um, But when (laughs) when Justin and I got married, uh, we actually started Silver Oak the same same week um, of our wedding, the same week we were married. And um, he had, having been with Christian Brothers, they made 40 different wines uh really that was really uh uh, as a result of their marketing department and he just 
thought, you know, there's way too many. They can't always all be our best. I would really like to just make one and make it the best in the one of the best in the world. And that's what he set out to do. And and to some people's minds accomplished. And it was so much fun. Oh my gosh, it was fun. Your parents were from Michigan and your grandparents worked for Ford. Your grandfather was an inventor at Ford. Did you learn anything from him that you were later able to apply to your professional life? That's an interesting question. I would say that I think I probably um, inherited a bit of a renegade personality. <laughs> and and uh, just, you know, uh, game to try almost anything. Well, and I would think, too, the fact that he was an inventor, it was almost like you had that ability. You know, when, when you're inventing something, it doesn't always go as planned. And you've had a lot of ups and downs in your professional life. So you probably have had perseverance that you were able to bring to work. Yeah, I would say in in relationship and in, and in business, uh, that perseverance is really a, a key. And mm-hmm. it's some one of the things that, that people forget. Um, from time to time, you know, you, somebody's not successful and they can't figure it out. But perseverance is really a key. Staying along the lines of perseverance, you've had many struggles and health challenges. As I said, you lost Justin, who was the love of your life. And then you had struggles uh, with cancer. Do you remember when you made the shift and decided that you would move forward and, and endure this grief and pain and not let it take over you? When, when Justin died, I had just, he, he died suddenly of a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And I had just had uh, major surgery, um, actually a life-threatening surgery, just four months before. And I was not in great shape. And having uh our relationship, how close it was, I actually wanted to die. I wanted to be with him. Mm -hmm. It's not that I wanted to give up on my life, but I just, more than anything, I just wanted to be with him. And I remember just aching to to kind of leave my body and and be wherever he was. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but it was the look in my children's eyes they had just lost their father, and they knew that my health was fragile. Um, you know, they were shaken by my cancer diagnosis. And um, it was that look that that uh, really kept me tethered. Um, and I've, I've got to be there for them. They were in their, they were all in their 20s. Right. And, uh, yeah, so it was that. And I think that's what, you know, in, in my own life, um, in, in a very short period of time, within six months, my 23-year marriage ended, my mother died, my sister died. And I understand what you're saying, because I too was at a point, it wasn't that I wanted to die, it was that I didn't know how to go forward. But I had children. And and what you're saying, I, th- I think that, that it can be a key for many people is to figure out that one thing you can focus on that can help you move forward. And then from there, things do get better. Uh, you don't see it at the time, but it does happen. That's that's right. And it doesn't, I wouldn't necessarily ever say to someone, well, you know, you have to find someone else mm-hmm. to live for, but you do, uh, finding your passion. Right. Uh, a reason to get up in the morning and get excited and sometimes it takes a little while, as 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 you know, John. It it takes a little while to kind of figure figure it out. But eventually, you find you find your passion. And and for me, beyond my children, once they, you know, were married and became adults, they're almost forty now. The youngest is almost forty. Um, then then that that passion did shift into um, being a uh, impact investor and really, um, really investing my time and energy in, into regenerating the earth through business and society through business. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but whatever your passion is, it doesn't matter really. Right. Uh, 
Whatever. It's that focus. It's, that, it's to have that focus yeah. on something. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and one of the things I learned from all of the grief, I, I learned to start to pay attention to signs. I now am such a firm believer that I can see something and just know that it's someone I love that's trying to tell me something. Have you ever experienced anything like that? <laughs> Absolutely. Actually, um, Justin had an amazing sense of humor, and um, it showed up the day after he died. Mm-hmm. I was uh, I was uh, tucking my daughter into bed, into the place where he usually slept, and uh, she had arrived that morning, and we were talking softly, and from across the room, about 10 feet away, um, I had a little fountain that had a pebble had pebbles in it and as we were as we were talking with each other a pebble came flying across the room and landed at my feet and and holly and i looked down at the pebble uh looked at each other looked down at the pebble again and just you know incredulous and she just softly said hi daddy you just knew we 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 knew i mean that (laughs) <laughs> we knew. Um, and then the next day, even funny, much funnier than that, there was a hairdryer, uh, a wall-mounted hairdryer in our bathroom that Justin absolutely hated because he would hit it with um, his elbow. And it was the kind that, that when the nozzle was disengaged, you um, it would go on. It, like, like in the hotel room sometimes, you would find uh, hair dryers like that. And then, um, so his elbow would, would disengage the nozzle and it would go off and he just, he would have to hang it up again and he just hated it. But I liked it because I used it, right? So, um, the next day that, that, um, hair dryer broke, in other words, it, uh, it went, it would go off and it would turn itself off and on at, at will and, mm-hmm. What I noticed is, and what other people noticed, when I was really deeply in grief and really upset, the thing would go off and it, the motor would just go wild. And then as I calmed down, the motor would calm down and stop. And <laughs> so that clearly that was, that was him. And uh, it was his way of saying, hey, I'm here. I'm here. You're okay. Uh, I'm here. But what a sense of humor that he right. would choose the thing that he hated to say hello I think that uh, I think that most people, when I ask them, "Have you noticed anything happening right. um, after your beloved died?" and most people say yes, but they also say, "I've never told anyone." And one of the reasons I talk about these, the hair dryer and the pebble and other things, in the, in the book, is to help normalize this in our society mm-hmm. because it's helpful and it's comforting to see the signs and feel the signs and feel the love and the connection. Bonnie, we're experiencing so much pain and loss with this coronavirus pandemic right now. There's, you know, sometimes it just feels like there's death all around us. For someone who's experiencing profound grief right now, what would you say to that person? First, I just want to say, and my my book is full of stories. It's not a how-to book. Mm Um. And that through the stories, whether they're my stories or someone else's stories, that to take courage and know that you can get through this. And, and that the journey of grief, it's not, this is not easy to hear when you're just, when it's so raw. But the journey of grief um, can be a transformative experience, an alchemical experience. It can change you in ways that are extraordinary and you have no idea and to my my encouragement would be to embrace that grief because it's when you embrace it and when you really just let it take over that it's like diving into a deep well Mm -hmm. and you and it's black and it's dark and it's scary and but when you dive deep you can, that's when you can find the, the golden pebble at the bottom, you know, the, the right. gift at the bottom. And uh, so that's what I would encourage people to do. 
Bonnie, had I not gone through all of those things that I described to you before, I would not be doing the work I'm doing now. All of this is the result of that period in my life. And I was in my early 40s at the time. That's that's right. And you allowed you, your losses, your the three great losses in your in your life, your mother, your sister, and your husband leaving, you survived those losses and let them change you and allowed them to change you. And, and like you which said, is a gift to yourself at the end. Like you said, Bonnie, when you're in it, you don't see that. But it, when you allow it, it, it does happen. It can happen. So that's the hope that I want everyone to hold on to and, and to get from your story, the story of love and, and perseverance. And, and it's something that we can all live. Yeah, we all have it in us. So Bonnie, tell us about the work you do with Meyer Family Enterprises. So with uh, this, so Jackson and I sold Silver Oak just um, a, a number of months before he died suddenly. And so I was 52 and uh, that was a moment. His death was a moment that changed things forever, as, as you well know, John. And um, so I became an, an instant investor, and a, an instant in an instant I was a um, a fiduciary. I had all these trusts that we had, you know, hypothetically created. Mm-hmm. Um, while we were while we were alive, you know, together, um, all of a sudden came into play, and um, it's not a role I wanted to play. And um, again, I was like an accidental investor, and for a couple of years, I I um, just listened to advisors and did what they told me to do. And after a couple of years, I realized I had a very balanced, very boring portfolio. And I was more excited about the money I was giving away to very innovative nonprofits. And so I decided to start investing in social entrepreneurs with my whole portfolio. So I'm what they call now an impact investor. And some people use the term regenerative investing. Uh, which means that I invest in things that help regenerate society and and the earth, and um, and also I'm also a regenerative farmer. Um, I live in the middle of the vineyard, and we do things that that help the soil uh, recover and become more and more alive. Uh, there are there there's a flock of goats and sheep who are arriving in our vineyard tomorrow. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, <laughs> to um, to uh, as uh, in a, a new old way of weed control, and by ha- doing that instead of disking the vineyard over and over, we um, it helps the soil actually um, regenerate itself. The book is perfectly paired. Bonnie, where can our listeners go to get more information about the book and your work? I have uh, I have a couple websites. Bonnie Meyer, B-O-N-N-Y, M-E-Y-E-R, BonnieMeyer.com. My business website, I can learn a little bit more about my investing, and that is uh, msenterprises.com. Bonnie, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story and some of the lessons that you've learned. You're so welcome. It is my hope for everyone. It's a wonderful relationship and a transformative experience through through grief into a new life. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman. 
Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Today is Dr. Katherine Berndorf, co-founder and medical director of the Motherhood Center, a treatment center in New York City for pregnant and new moms experiencing anxiety and depression. She specializes in treating women before, during, and after pregnancy, as well as at other times of transition in their lives. Dr. Berndorf is an associate professor of psychiatry at Cornell. She was a regular mental health columnist for Self Magazine and has appeared on numerous television programs, including The Today Show, Good Morning America, MSNBC, and CNN. She is the co-author of the new book, What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. Dr. Berndorf is here today to discuss breastfeeding. Welcome, Dr. Berndorf. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Catherine, how important is it for a mother to breastfeed? And if it is, what are the benefits? Oh, I feel like that's almost a trick question, Joan. Um, How important is it? It is important if it is important to you and you want to do it and it works out and it's good for you and it's good for the baby. Then that's a wonderful, perfect-ish kind of scenario. But I think what I'd say is you got to feed your baby one way or another. So I want to flip it a little bit and say babies need to be fed. Fed is best. How they get fed needs to be appropriate, but it certainly doesn't have to be by breastfeeding, right? If it is, wonderful. And if that works out, terrific. But I find myself in a very funny position often as a reproductive psychiatrist telling women that they're actually feeling worse because they're breastfeeding, even though they think that the bonding that's going on during it is essential. And what will happen is, you know, again, I, can't, I see a population of women sometimes that are, are quite, quite depressed or quite anxious, and they're holding on to something that is adding to their stress and to their illness. And that makes it very, very hard to breastfeed, quote, effectively. And when I say that, I mean, what are what is the baby getting for that, right? There's this idea, a very popular idea right now that, that breast milk is better than formula. I don't know that that is actually true, right? There was this idea, like, how many IQ points will my kid lose out on if I formula feed them? Will they... Will they gain immunity if, if I don't breastfeed? I mean, there, there are some real questions. The IQ one, I take issue with. And I don't think it has been um, definitively proven. In fact, there's, there's more recent studies saying that, that that is not the case and certainly not to the extent we once thought it might be. I, I support breastfeeding. This is not a, um, to say that people shouldn't try, particularly if they want to. And, and it's something they, they, they work, will work hard to do. But it, I, I would also say it's not for everybody. I can remember when I had delivered both of my sons, there was a lot of pressure put on me to breastfeed. And with everything that a new mother is going through, it really, it, it just adds to so much stress that they're experiencing at that time. Yes. Again, a very common experience, John. It's these days, again, in 2019, it's very common in hospitals after women deliver to be really pushed towards breastfeeding um, without the, the idea that you don't have to, or that you have a choice or that, um, or, 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 you know, women have told me that they're not offered formula if they if they ask for it or they're, they're judged if they do. And, you know, I, 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 I hate to say I take issue with that because I think it's, 
I, I get that it's a, a, an amazing thing to be able to do in many cases for both mother and child. And I do think there are benefits, tremendous benefits of it. But I think that pushing anything is potentially problematic and deciding that there is one right way really doesn't make sense. Right? It is, it is not so clearly superior that we need to, uh, you know, insist that it be the one and only way to do things. And, and when something is treated that way or conceptualized that way, there's pressure and there's shame um, when it doesn't happen. Catherine, is it always easy for a woman to breastfeed? No. I, I would say, well, there's this fantasy that you're just going to pop the baby on the breast and it's they're going to know how to latch and suck and it's going to go easily. I mean, that'd be great. And guess what? For some people, there is they, they do have that experience. But I'd say for the majority of people, it's something to learn how to do. And then for those who can stick with it, given their circumstances, it, it, it gets easier and much more um, becomes more natural. But I don't think it's sort of like becoming a mother, isn't it? just an easy, natural thing to do. No. And I would say the same with breastfeeding. It's not just an easy and natural thing to do for the majority of women. It takes it takes time to figure it out, both for you and the newborn, and to get to a place where it is feels easy and natural. And, and even then, you know, what's it like for you? Does it make sense in the context of your life for this particular baby, et cetera, et cetera? So, Catherine, understanding that it isn't always this easy, natural process that we believe it would be, and that when it doesn't happen the way we expect it to, we tend to feel like a failure. And so when a woman experiences those feelings that she's less adequate and and not able to be this quote-unquote perfect mother right from the start, what advice do you offer that woman to help overcome those types of feelings? Well, I think again, knowing that it that it might not go as planned. So this idea that being flexible, again, if your personality style is more flexible than the next person, you're probably, you know, in, in, in reasonable shape. But but there are many of us who are controlling and a little bit rigid about how we do things and want it to go just the way we thought. So that's that's gonna make for a tough time if it's not going well. But but I would say if it if it's not going well it's probably not your fault. Um, and and to not blame yourself and to assume in a self-critical fashion that, that you're bad and defective and it, you know, it, it cuts to your core, you know, it's a skill that you learn. And, and again, it's not easy or doable for everyone for a number of reasons, some of them anatomical, psychological, hormonal. I mean, there, there are a multitude of reasons why it may or may not work so well, but that doesn't mean you're defective or you're bad. It just means that, that it may be more of a struggle for you than the next person who's going to have a struggle with something else. And if we could not judge ourselves and if we could cut ourselves some slack and just say, Ugh, it's not working, it makes me feel bad, but it doesn't make me bad, Right. Yes, you may feel bad. Yes, the message may be, or you really wanted to do it and it's not working. And there's loss in that, right? So you're allowed to feel bad, right? Feelings are legit, right? You, you, if it, if, if you're feeling upset and sad or, um, about it, that's real. But to have that define you or say something about you that you're not good enough is, is actually unrelated, and, and sometimes it, it, it takes talking about it with someone that you trust, who's, you know, supportive, who's non-judgmental, who can kind of help you see that, right, that it's okay. It, it, this, this didn't work out so well. Let's figure out how to get this baby fed and how to find time with that baby, if that's what you were really, was so important to you about the breastfeeding, you know, figure out how, what feeds you're going to be on and how you're going to do it, you know, just. I think organizing around a new system starts to help people feel like, okay, 
I got this. I can I can get back in the game and I can still be connected to this baby who I thought needed to have breast milk in order to be my child. Not true. Again, talking about it, sharing how you're feeling, getting support from people who are non-judgmental, so that you can get through the loss of something that you wanted to do that's not working out. The book is What No One Tells You, A Guide to Your Emotions During Pregnancy and Motherhood. If you're interested in this topic or others like it, they are covered in this book. And and if you would like to get more information about Dr. Berndorf and her work, you can visit themotherhoodcenter.com. And as always, to hear more from Dr. Berndorf, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Catherine. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. It has been reported that children spend more than six and a half hours per day on screens. 93% of teen Facebook users share their real name. Sexting is a ranking concern for U.S. children. And one-third of students between ages 12 to 17 have been victims of cyberbullying. Children face real dangers online. But how can parents protect their kids without isolating them from the reality of our digitally connected world? Joining me today is Will Geddes, one of the world's leading security Specialists. Will coaches parents on the risks of internet dangers and offers practical advice so that children can be engaged in modern media while remaining safe. Will is a regular commentator and analyst for media, including CNN, NBC, BBC, and Newsweek, and he's the author of the book, Parent Alert, How to Keep Your Kids Safe Online. Welcome, Will. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invite, Joan. So, Will, when you hear words like cybercrime, sexting, cyberbullying, phishing, cyberstalking, grooming, nude selfies, these are activities that were not part of my world as a child. But today, it's a very different story. Our kids are exposed to these scary activities on a daily basis, and they're not equipped to handle these realities. So as parents, we can't shield our kids from online dangers if we don't know what they are. Can you give us a general understanding of what is going on in the digital world that our kids are being exposed to? Well, of course. I mean, certainly in terms of the digital life and the virtual life that we all are increasingly inhabiting, this is, uh, in many regards, uh, still an uncharted waters for most of us in terms of the kind of risks that we can potentially be presented with, the type of content and material that we might not actively necessarily seek out, but we can come across accidentally or uh, just purely by chance. And in many regards, although we want to place as much trust as we can on the developers of apps and the builders of social media sites, the Internet as a whole, unfortunately, still doesn't have the degrees of controls that each of us might necessarily want. But more importantly, that could ideally protect children from a the types of content that they could potentially see but b the kinds of threats that they could be exposed to and those threats now make up an increasingly wide spectrum well there were a couple of terms that i threw out and i want to just run through some of them and if you can give us a very brief explanation of what they are so cybercrime what is that well cybercrime will be fundamentally any kind of crime which could seek to extract or extort money from you or by duplicating or recreating your identity to use your identity as a proxy to perpetrating various crimes on the internet. Now that could be defrauding other individuals, it could be grooming other individuals, uh, but it's fundamentally crime that falls within the virtual cyberspace as opposed to what we might conventionally see in the real world. So anything from robbery through to fraud to extortion. Now, you just mentioned the word grooming. What is that? Well, grooming is the generic term that is used more often than not when there are predators who are seeking 
to actively target children for some kind of nefarious activity. And unfortunately, in the vast majority of those instances, it will be with some sexualized nature. Now, grooming is incredibly insidious because it generally constitutes the process of cultivating, indoctrinating, and coercing a child over a period of time through very, very, very subtle means. And many of the predators that are grooming children and minors online will use such subtle tactics that the child can quite often not realize what is actually happening until they have been enveloped, if you like, by the predator into either sharing information, compromising photographs, or even in the worst instances, even physically meeting with the groomer in the real world. Is there a common way that opportunists prey on children? Is there something that parents can be looking for? Well, one of the things that I I talk about quite extensively in this book is how valid will this book be in, say, a few months from now or even a year from now? And where I frequently mentioned within the book is about your protection, your safety being a defense in depth. And what I mean by that is that although technology can evolve and advance incredibly quickly and your child might be on one app this week and then on a brand new app next week, there are still some fundamental modus operandi that the criminal, the extortionist, the groomer for that matter needs to be able to follow to be able to compromise you as an individual or the child into giving up personal information, enabling access into a private account, or being susceptible to some degree of extortion. And the way that I best describe it is to say that you or the child, for that matter, is the key to the house. And if the house is full of your valuables, your private information, your personal data, whatever means or process that the criminal or the threat has to approach by, they still have to come through that door, which is protected by you. So although one talks about hacking more often than not in a technical sense, in many regards, it is about human hacking. It's compromising the person and coercing or or maybe even manipulating you to compromise the security values and common sense that you might not normally sort of uh, drop in a real world situation that you would be uh, duped into believing is worth dropping. So whether that be that there is some reward against you providing certain information, whether that be entering your personal information or whether it be by sending a compromising picture. So then, Will, how do we keep the door to our house shut? What is cybersecurity and how can we practice it on social media? Well, when the publishers first came to me with the book, they said, Will, what we want is something that is going to cover children between the ages of 7 and 17. When I looked at the actual demographic of the 13 to 17-year-olds, or the, sorry, the 17 to 17-year-olds, I explained to the publishers that what we can talk about here is best practice. So it's Everything from the moment you set up that brand new device that you've taken out of the box, what account name do you put on it, what password do you put on it, the two-factor authentication, VPN, and various other things that I'll talk about in the book, which are very easy to put in place, but will control your digital footprint from the outset. But many children will already become incredibly capable and conversant with technology that trying to integrate that best practice is going to be a challenge. But where the book's if you like, serves its purpose, is more as crisis management guide in the event of when things actually go wrong, which is more often going to be probably the case for that 13 to 17-year-old age group. So, Will, when something does go wrong, what is something that a parent can do? Well, there are lots and lots of things you can do. And the first thing that I would always wish to reassure parents, and I've dealt with a number of cases over the years where parents have come to me in absolute desperation to say, uh, what can I do? My child has done this, that, or the other. Um, The first thing is about talking to your child and how to communicate with them in such a way that the child doesn't feel that you're prying and you're spying on them, but also that they can come to you without judgment, without recrimination, because children will feel that if they do come to the parent, there is that embarrassment factor to start with, that they may have been caught out on something which in many regards was probably pretty straightforward and was just common sense that they didn't do but they did and that the parent can actually help them and advise them and work through that problem 
And then in the book, I talk about everything from how you as a parent can actually, with the child as teamwork, manage that situation to recover it and all the sources and resources that you can go to that can assist you with that, even right through to the really serious situations where it makes very clear definitive thresholds of when you need to even potentially alert law enforcement and then how you can work with law enforcement to best enable them to assist and support you. The book is Parent Alert, How to Keep Your Kids Safe Online. Will, if our listeners would like to get more information, where can they go? Well, they can go to Amazon and they can go to many reputable online booksellers. And uh, they can also go to our Instagram account, which is parent underscore alert, where we are answering a number of uh, people's questions. We're trying to post up some interesting content. And if any of your listeners uh, do have any particular questions, please, they can send a message through there and we'll do our best to try and answer that for them. Well, thank you so much for being here. As I said in the beginning, it can be a scary world, but... By following your advice and implementing security measures, we can avoid potential risks while reaping the many benefits of a connected society. So thank you for being here and sharing with us. Well, thank you for the invite, Joan. It's been a pleasure. We'll be right back. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures. And today's tip is not about social media. It's about real life. You've done it. I've done it. We've all done it. What is it? It's multitasking. We're rubbing the dog while we're working on the computer. We're looking at our text messages while a friend is talking to us on the phone and can't see what we're doing. We've been socially distancing and we're all used to communicating through our devices rather than person to person. Our society is opening up. Yes, we're wearing masks and we're a little further away, but the bottom line is we're not engaging with someone in real life the way that we should. Social media is supposed to be social. Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and other platforms are all social. They're not called all-consuming media or all-the-time media, and they're most definitely not called friends and family. This week, I encourage you to be all there. Be 100% involved in what you're doing. Spend time without your phone when you're with your family. Call a friend and really listen to what they have to say. Go out and throw the ball with the dog and leave the phone on mute. Talk to someone from an approved social distance. Really talk to them. Giving your time and attention to others is powerful. Social media can wait. It will still be there when you get back. This is Susan McLaughlin from SMC Ventures, encouraging you to be all there and give yourself a break from social media. What is healing music? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati, owner of Awaken Sound Health. Healing music is any type of music that helps you release your stress, anxiety, or emotional pain. And any kind of music can be healing. Music that makes you get up and dance is uplifting and joyful and can completely replace the emotions of a stressful day. Music that makes you sing your heart out has the same cathartic effect. Music can make you laugh, cry, smile, sigh, remember, forget, connect, or detach. Music is a language, a science, and an art, and when artfully and skillfully crafted, can help you to relax, release, and reset. At Awaken Sound Health, this is what we do best. We are sound therapists who are also artful musicians. We are fluent in the language of music and skillful in our application, and we know how to use it to help you release your stress, your fear, your anger, and your sorrow, so you can embrace joy, find balance, and experience peace. Give us one hour any day of your week, Try any of our signature experiences, and we will color your world with a tapestry of healing vibrations and healing sounds that will soothe you and help you remember that serenity is not a privilege. It is your right. You were born to be happy, and we can help you. For more information or to make an appointment, go to awakensoundhealth.com. Sound therapy is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. Did you know that over time, High blood sugar levels can damage the nerves, especially those in the feet. Diabetic neuropathy is not one condition, but a group of conditions that can cause damage to the feet due to diabetes. Hi, I am Dr. Anand Joshi 
podiatrist practicing in Woodland Park, New Jersey at Advanced Foot Care of NJ LLC. In addition to high sugar levels, other factors that can worsen nerve damage include smoking, alcoholism, or a history of diabetic neuropathy in the family. Symptoms of diabetic neuropathy include numbness, tingling, and pain in the feet. This can contribute to a greater risk of a person experiencing cuts or injuries to the feet due to lack of feeling. It's important to maintain good health and good blood sugar control in order to treat diabetic neuropathy. While a doctor cannot reverse nerve damage, he or she can recommend treatments to prevent it from worsening. Person with diabetes should go for regular foot exams to prevent complications such as infections or amputation. If you'd like more information or to schedule an appointment, please visit our website, footpainnj.com. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Linda Mitchell, a transformational life coach and reinvention expert who helps her clients move through life's challenges and transitions with purpose, passion, and clarity to emerge more powerful, fulfilled, and purposeful. Linda is here today to discuss simplifying your schedule to save your sanity. Welcome, Linda. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back, Joan. So Linda, being too busy is one of the biggest stressors for most people. With so many responsibilities and opportunities, it's easy to end up being overscheduled and there's hardly any time to relax. So how do we get so far out of balance and what can we do to combat this problem that so many of us face? Well, Joan, I believe the biggest reason is because our culture truly does applaud busyness. We hear things like, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, as if busy people are more important, smarter, or more valuable somehow. And the second part of this is that most of us have bought into this fallacy, and we think we have to be superhuman. We think we should do it all and be it all. We love to tell each other how crazy busy we are because we feel important and valuable. It's like we're subconsciously validating ourselves by being overly busy. The last piece lies in feeling like we can't let anyone down. Sometimes, even if you know that saying no to someone would serve you better, we say yes anyway because we hate to let others down. So I invite people right now to ask themselves these quick questions. Do you push yourself past your natural limits because you think you need to do and be it all? Do you feel guilty about leaving things undone for a bit? Or do you believe that enjoying some downtime will just result in feeling even more swamped afterward? Is it easier for you to just take on one more task because you believe you'd be letting someone down if you say no? If any of this resonates with you, you're probably stressed, overwhelmed, and way overdue for some R&R. You're buying into the societal values instead of sticking to your own personal values. And I'm speaking from personal experience. After many years of being on the proverbial hamster wheel, I finally learned that being busy all the time doesn't make me a better person or win me any awards for the crazy schedule or the longest to-do list. All it did was keep me stressed. We need a perspective change in order to simplify our schedules and save our sanity. The truth is, the happier, smarter, and more fulfilled person finds a way to balance work and home life without guilt or self-criticism. You can be busy and productive while still finding time to rest, rejuvenate, and save your sanity. This may sound like a pipe dream if your schedule is so full that you can barely find time to meet all your responsibilities, let alone schedule downtime. But creating this balance begins with that perspective change. If you believe walking away from your to-do list before it's complete makes you lazy, unfocused, or a slacker, let's reframe that thinking. Taking time to rest and recharge is much different than laziness, and it's what you need most if you expect to continue to be productive, focused, and creative. Linda, as you were asking those questions, I could hear our listeners shouting yes to answering Mm -hmm. them. So can you give us some tips that can help us simplify our schedules? Yes, sure. These are things I do. Leave buffers in your schedule. When every moment is spoken for, all it takes is one unexpected interruption or incident to suddenly be running behind. The best thing you can do for your schedule is to build in some buffers. It's easy to underestimate the time a task will take, so plan 15-minute catch-up periods throughout the day. Two, set limits and don't try to do it all. It's easy to justify busyness if everything on our plate is a good thing. Being busy is not a bad thing. However, if you're stressed because you're overcommitted and you barely have time to breathe, 
you're definitely doing too much. You inevitably become cranky and exhausted. Instead, discern your priorities. Whittle down to the essentials and delegate necessary items that can be done by others. You'll feel more energetic and enthusiastic instead of burdened by obligations. And three is to just say no. Choose which activities add value to your life and decide to let go of others. When you recognize that you can never do it all, it's easier to be satisfied with only doing the most important things. Also, if you're doing things simply because others expect you to, it's time to put some healthy boundaries in place and just say no. Don't allow others to dictate your schedule out of fear of disappointing or upsetting them. Always pleasing other people creates resentment and usually backfires. Linda, the last one, just say no. That's a very difficult thing for many people to do. So what's really behind the difficulty in saying no? It is one of the hardest for a few reasons. Some I've already mentioned, and then there's FOMO, fear of missing out. When opportunities come along, we don't want to miss out. We hear messages like, the early bird gets the worm, and if you don't jump on the opportunity, someone else will. Messages like these create that fear of missing out. But we need to recognize not every opportunity is right for you. So it's time to get clear on and choose only what's in alignment with your mission and purpose. Creating and sticking to some healthy boundaries makes it easier and keeps you from running in a million directions. We'll never successfully do it all. So prioritizing is the key. Remember, balance in life is one of the essential elements of feeling happy and fulfilled. Simplifying your schedule is possible, but give yourself time as you adjust to this new healthy habit. Actually, make relaxation an entry on your to-do list. Shifting your perspective will be easier as you find yourself less frenzied, more balanced, and more joy-filled. It's really worth the effort. Linda, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about this topic or Linda and her work, you can visit her website, livinginspiredcoaching.com. And as always, to hear more from Linda, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Linda. We'll be right back. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative change your attitude, change your life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.